Sita Brahmachari is an award-winning writer for children and young adults. She has an MA in arts education and a background in theatre in education. She volunteers at the Islington Refugee Centre, is an amnesty ambassador and has been online writer in residence at Book Trust. Sita joins me in the reading corner today to talk about her most recent novel, When Secrets Set Sail. So this is a story about two girls, Usha and Imtiaz, and it's a mystery surrounding the home that they share. At the beginning of the story, Imtiaz is adopted by Usha's parents. Now, Usha's grandmother, her Kalima, is recently deceased and her ghost has reappeared with the intent of urging her granddaughter to complete a task that she has neglected. Meanwhile, Intiaz has visions of a kind lady in a white sari who seems to be visible only to children. How do the stories of these women connect and what's the significance of the house where they live? Well, there's a lot going on in the story and there's a lot to talk about. So I'm really pleased that Sita is here to help me unravel the threads of this story. Welcome, Sita. Thank you, Nikki. Now, I know that in the past I've read a short article by you in a book called Swallowed by the Whale, How to Survive the Writing Life. And one of the things that you wrote in there is that a story for you usually starts with a symbol. I was guessing that maybe the conch is a symbol at the heart of this story, but is that where it all started or not? So the conch shell is absolutely the major symbol and also a handkerchief with embroidery of a pomegranate on it um, and the name Lucky. But it is absolutely the symbol because it's the listening symbol of the story. And um, the, the children listen to the conch and they don't just hear the sea, but they hear the ayahs the Indian nursemaid's voice through the waves, she says, uh, promise to piece me together, uh, all my stories lost forever. So that that really caught me, that idea of somebody picking up a conch shell and hearing a voice was slightly spooky and I just, I always stayed with me as an idea. But it, it's sort of slightly spooky because um, the inspiration for the story began when I was working with the Royal Shakespeare Company on Midnight's Children when I was doing education work on that. And I was had this incredible job, actually, where I toured around Britain with the show and America. And my job was to collect stories about partition in the diaspora, so people's memories. And I worked a lot in elderly people's homes um, and people told me of their memories of partition, you know, quite traumatic memories sometimes of how they had to move from India to Pakistan or Pakistan to India or Bangladesh and what that meant to them. And there was this one lady in the corner that had dementia. And she said, Sita, tell the story of the Ayas. And the carer was saying, Sita hasn't come to hear the story about the Ayas. She wants to talk about partition. No, no, no. You must tell the story about the Ayas. Go to Hackney. And of course, you know, what every writer does is they look to the story that's kind of in the corner of the room. And that's the one that kind of grabs them. So while listening and recording the partition stories, I just kept thinking about, well, well, who are these ayahs? And I had sort of seen them in stories and uh, the secret garden, and, but they'd always been on the periphery of the story and they were never the subject of the story. And so many years I thought, I sort of had glimpses of ayahs in different theatre shows and um, my friend Tanika Gupta did a theatre show for the RSC where they had ayahs. And I suddenly thought, oh, 
I really want to write this story about Ayers, but I want to write it through the children's perspective. Because I thought about the Ayers who came on this passage from India to look after these children. And quite often, their, their, their passage would not be paid home. And sometimes they would be abandoned. Mm. And the idea of these Indian women, working class women, kind of wandering around the streets of Britain and the cultural kind of disconnect of that really kind of, it really touched me. And I thought about the Ayers. I thought about what it would be like for them, but I thought about what it would be like for the children who love them to suddenly be come from India to England to a new land, even if it is the land of their heritage, and then to, to have to start a new life and to be without their Ayers. So I really wanted to write a story which was about the love between the Ayah and the children who looked after them. Uh, interesting listening to you uh, talk there because in the secret garden, yes, the Ayah obviously is peripheral, but Mary's connection with her Ayah is much more significant than any connection that she had with her own mother. And what's really interesting in your story is the children see the Ayah. The Ayah is invisible to the adults. And I thought, I bet that's what it was like in many ways, that the Ayah was a convenience but invisible. Yeah, and I think I was very interested in in writing a story which was cutting across class. And in fact, there's a character called Gladys in the story who the children discover through testimony that they find in the library from Empire Day. And Gladys is a cleaner and she gets to have her oral testimony and she tells that story. Because um, I thought, who would know the Ayers who lived in that house in Hackney? Who really would know them? Not, not who would be kind of telling them what to do or arranging their transport or whatever, but who would actually have befriend those characters? And I thought, well, Gladys is the cleaner in the house, so she would go and she would meet Minnie and she would meet Lucky and she would meet the characters and she would understand what it was like for them to be invisible. And so that was kind of what I wanted to do in this story is to is to look at the invisible people and the invisible women, particularly mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. and working class women in particular. And of course, Imtiaz and Usha also come from um, very different backgrounds because Imtiaz was actually abandoned at birth, mm-hmm. uh, looked after by this amazing social worker, Delhi, and has just come into this house where, for the first time in her life, she has the space to dream and explore who she is and not just survive. So I really, I really wanted to write that into every sort of page of this story. I feel I have to talk a bit about the house as well. I mean, I really want to live in that house on, on the top deck, <laughs> which is just a, a wonderful ship-like space for the children, including an outdoor garden. What a dream. Tell us a little bit about the real home and whether it still it still exists. Because the, you know, because the Ayas came here on the long ship journey from India, I wanted the house to have symbolically inside it the ship. And I wanted to take the reader on a, on a journey. So I thought, well, I can because it's kind of drawing on magic realism a lot in this story. And so I thought, right, well, I'll just make the top of the house a ship. And I'm talking about migration stories. I'm talking about, you know, from pre-Victorian times in the story. So what is the common symbol of the vibrations of that time is the ship. And so on the top of that top floor of their house, they have an anchor. Um, they have a chronometer, which is a way of navigating at, at sea. They have uh, the ship's ropes. They have the ship's wheel. Um, so there's a sense of them being in control of their own journey mm-hmm. up there on the top deck. 
And, you know, one of the things I often say to young people when I go into schools is who, who'd like to go on holiday without their parents? Who'd like to have a massive adventure without their parents or carers? And they all like shoot their hands up. And I say, no, it's not because it's not because we don't you know, love our families. It's just that because in order to go on that adventure, we need space. Mm-hmm. And so what I've done for the children in this story, especially Imtiaz, who's never had that space, is give her the most incredible dreaming space. Mm-hmm. And there's an enormous portal window that comes from a ship. Um, and who knows what, where that ship came from and where it traveled to and what difficult journeys were made on that trip or what loving journey. We don't know. So in a way, it's a kind of symbol of British and colonial and empire history. And they're part of the landscape that these children are growing up in. So I kind of really planted that there. And then I thought, right, I haven't had enough. So I stepped through that enormous portal window and I have this incredible garden, which again is, is a place with nature. It's even it's in the middle of Hackney, but it, it's got grasses and it's got birds on and it's got roses. They have air. They have space. And, and even though the real house of Ayers, when I actually went to be interviewed on the steps of the real house of Ayers, which the incredible uh, young activist Fahana Mamuji is trying to get a blue plaque for in Hackney. When I, we actually went there, it was hilarious because in my story, I've played to this beautiful, peaceful place where the roads have been closed off. But in reality, we couldn't hear our own voices because it was so noisy from the street. So, yeah, I've created a a fantasy space from a real history. I want to talk a little bit about some of the characters. You've you've mentioned the two girls, but I think I want to talk about Kalima, who is the grandmother who comes back to visit her ghost. And her arrival is on the back of a whale on a trip down the Thames where they're going to scatter the ashes. That kind of jolts you out of your expectation that moment in the story. And she's quite, she's an amazing character. She's larger than life. And of course, she is, she is part goddess than part human. So, you know, lucky Lakshmi uh, was a Hindu and her, in the story, um, her religion is kind of taken from her. And so religion is quite important. Her people's, you know, faith is quite important in the story. And anyway, Kali is a goddess and, um, and she kind of behaves like a goddess. So I sort of took the idea of a goddess and played with it. And I thought, well, this goddess is going to be a fashion designer and she's going to be like a Bieber character. She would have been you know, doing beautiful textiles in Liberties. She's one of those grannies that's really kind of larger than life and says whatever she thinks. And I had such fun creating her because Usha is quite quiet and shy. So it's just the, the foil to Usha is Kalima. And um, she kind of sees the world as it is. She speaks her mind. And she also is part of the inheritance of the migrants that came to this country, like my father's generation, in that my dad came here as a doctor in 1959. And so she's kind of part of that generation and the kind of experiences that my dad talked about when we were growing up. I've, I've been able to bring in that experience to the world in Kalima. Um, so in this story, we have contemporary children we have their parents' generation. We have Kalima's generation, who's kind of my dad's generation. Then we have the Ayas, which is kind of going back to about the 30s and way back then to Victorian times. So you're kind of seeing, you're seeing that history of the migration through these characters. And I needed a really, really huge larger-than-life character to kind of create that link between the bridge between the generations. So Kalima is that goddess that's kind of there. And she, you know, she, she says things like, well, I always felt like coming to my own funeral. 
and things like that. And um, she's she's just really in your face. She's a really in your face granny as well as being a goddess. And I loved, I mean, maybe I could read you a tiny bit of it. Please. Is that good? <laughs> I can't tell you. I just sat at my desk and laughed when I wrote her character. Okay, so this is Usha, and she's about to put her Kalima's ashes in the Thames in a little ashes boat. Head held high, Usha walked slowly down the steps to the raft platform. Her body swayed as it bobbed up and down, troubled by the river's constant lapping. Feeling lightheaded now, she cupped the ashes boat in both hands and kneeled down so that all that separated her from the water were the safety railings and the cat flap five gate she was to open to set her Kalimas ashes sailing free. Her mind flashed bright with an image of spirits tapping at the globe window. Down here, so close to the river, she could feel every tilt of the water. Closing her eyes, she breathed in and out, slowing her heartbeat to the rhythm of the waves. Opening the tiny gate, she placed the ashes boat on the water and let go. At the sight of all that was left of her Kalimar bobbing alone, Usha had the urge to pluck the boat out again, but it had sailed out of reach. Through tear-washed eyes, she watched the candle flicker casting a glowing light over the water as the bunting sails set fire and burned brightly. As long as the flame stays lit, you're still here with me, Kalimar, she whispered. Behind her, Tandy called out a reminder. Don't forget the petals, Rush. Moving as if in a dream, she reached into her pocket, feeling the velvet softness of the rose petals. She began to scatter them on the water, where they trailed behind the ashes boat. Within moments, the waxen paper began to grow so heavy that the last of the flaming sails met the water, seeming to be snuffed out. Make a wish before the light goes out. Make a wish before the light goes out. Make a wish before... I wish, I wish, I wish that you'd come back. It's too late. Her heart sank at the same time as the little boat dipped beneath the surface of the grey river. Usha felt a sudden, deadening pang of guilt. Why didn't I wish for Kalima to be at peace or reunited with Pops Michael? She berated herself and, unfurling her finger, she found the miniature figure of Kali indented into her skin. Usha stared at the murky river. The light was extinguished. It was over, and all she felt was a dull ache of emptiness in her stomach. Her legs collapsed under her, and she sat cross-legged on the floating platform, watching the rippling water. Beneath that space where the boat had sunk, the afternoon sun formed a glistening light view. The surface dipped, and the rose petals were caught in a swirling vortex, into which the sun shot millions of shards of light, emerald, green, purple, red, and Bright yellow sparks formed a rainbow pathway across the Thames. Hypnotised by the river's beauty, as if Kalima had created it herself, Usha leant forward to touch the colours on the water. Holding her breath, she squinted into the sun and gasped to find a slender wreath of smoke or steam shooting up from the river just where the boat had sunk. Only a trick of the light and shadow, she reasoned, as she peered closer. But the force of the water built and now spurted violently upwards, splashing her, propelling her trembling body backwards as Kalima rose from the Thames on the shiny grey mass of a whale's back. Frozen to the spot, Usha willed her legs to move, but she could do nothing but stare in horror at the sight of her Kalima, just as she was in life, surging towards her. Cowering away, Usha bashed against the railings as the platform listed violently sideways then steadied itself 
returning shaken to the water with a loud thud as the great whale dived down and the Rainbow River smudged back into mucky brown. Her heart racing, struggling to catch her breath, Usha turned to find her Kalimar sitting beside her. You're dead, Usha gasped. What sort of a greeting do you call that? Kalimar threw her head back and laughed. Usha opened her mouth to speak several times, but her tongue was numb. I'm as surprised to find myself back in the land of the living as you are, believe me, Yush. Whales are not a mode of transport I'm familiar with. Boat, plane, hovercraft, submarine, yes, rickshaw even. I've swum with dolphins, but never a whale. Kalimar stood up, shifting from foot to foot as if testing her ability to stand, brushing herself down, her clothes already miraculously dry. But what a novelty to have my energy back, she said, turning to where Tambi Lemon Merv stood at the top of the steps, calling for Usha to join them, waving at her now as if they had felt and seen nothing to disturb them. But why were you being carried on the back of a whale? Usha asked, still shaking her head in disbelief. Well, you know how your pops Michael loved his whale watching. Maybe he came to pick me up and I've been diverted. Who knows the mysteries of life and death? We're sitting on the border of unknowing here. Kalimar grinned and clapped her hands at the sights of her bunting glowing in the breeze. You remembered my angel. Usha nodded. Have I dreamt you up? Have I willed you here? She whispered. Kalimar shrugged. Don't ask me. All I know is I'm here by your side and you're talking to me. And I have to admit, I always fancied turning up to my own funeral. So come on, Yush. Let's make the most of it while it lasts. It's a big moment uh, in the story. And the whale, there's there's this idea of the whale's third eye, isn't there? What's all that about? So again, this business about symbols and um, swallowed by a whale, when I was asked to, to be part of that collection, I thought it was funny because I'd been quite obsessed with whales. Um, because I discovered, so looking for symbols, I, I discovered the symbol of the whale. And also with my own children, actually, when they were babies, I used to play them whale songs. And they used to go to sleep miraculously. So there's a kind of an imtiaz. That's how she goes to sleep in the story. So I've always been a bit obsessed with whales. Um, but I then discovered doing research that because obviously whales are, are so huge, their eyes are on different sides of their head. So they're seeing different universes with different eyes. You know, so on one side, they might see the pollution of the Thames. And on the other side, they might see, I don't know, St. Paul Cathedral. And in the, in the third eye in the middle, they have this kind of way of calibrating the images to bring them together. And so obviously the third eye is, Hinduism is, is the, the spiritual or the eye that goes beyond what we can see consciously. So for me, it was a fantastic symbol of, of bringing together um, what I'm trying to do in this story because these girls, Intiat and Usha, are so different. They're so different. They have such different histories. It's like, how on earth are they ever going to become sisters? How are they ever going to work together? How are they ever going to see things from each other's perspectives? And suddenly I have this whale's eye view, which is kind of a third a third way. You know, I mean, growing up to, to the age that I am now, I have friends that I had from childhood that maybe now, you know, politically we don't have much in common or we may have gone very different ways. But there's something of the way that we saw the world as children that has kept that bond there. So a lot in a lot of my stories, I'm thinking about the bond between siblings, and it doesn't have to be birth bond. It, it, it can be something that we grow. And in these times in particular, I wanted to write a story where people from very different perspectives come to see the same picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a struggle. 
So the whale's eye view was such a brilliant, when I discovered that, I was like, yes, I found my metaphor. <laughs> and that's what I mean about symbols for me. It's always the symbols that help me to bring the story together because I don't want to write a migration story. I don't want to write a story about colonial. I don't want to write a story about something. I want to, to write uh, a story which has characters who are finding their way through something. Mm. Uh, so what do we do when we try to find our way through something? We look for meaning. Well, I know that there's so much more that we could talk about with this, but we haven't even touched on Cosmo and we haven't even got to the library. But in a way, maybe it's it's good because people should be reading the book to discover those things for themselves as they read. I did want to perhaps end by thinking about your dedication for this book, which is to your parents and to the workers for the National Health Service. I think probably this must have been written as a dedication before the current circumstances that we're oh, in. Yeah, yeah. But it just felt so important to have that there, um, almost as though it was foregrounding some of the things that were um, about to, to happen. So as we're recording this, we're in the middle of a, a second or is it a third lockdown um, in a pandemic. Um, obviously, both your parents worked for uh, the National health service why was it important that this particular book was dedicated to them so the house that I've created has been very many things in different times it obviously was once the house of Ayers but in the in the early 60s it's it, one of the first doctor surgeries and who were the doctors um, and nurses that that worked in the post-war poverty-stricken cities um, places it was often the migrant doctors so I kind of, in a way, Dr. Parr in the story is is like my dad. And it's what I grew up with seeing how hardworking these people were and what and what they gave. My dad passed away in 2008. But what he gave to the National Health Service was something I really understood as a child and my mum working together. So I felt like it was the foundation of the house. It was a caring place. And that migrant people had always been central to this caring place, like the Ayers had been to it. So in the story, in the narrative, they're not just rediscovering the story of the Ayers, but she sets them quite a task because she says that unless you find my story, you will lose your hand. Mm. And um, my dad used to speak very philosophically about what it was like coming from a country where if your children were ill, they were not supported by the system, like the National Health Service. And he used to say things like that to us as children, like, you, you have to understand how lucky you are because you know, if you are ill, you can go to the doctor and we can help you. And so we really grew up with that sense of human rights as children and not to take that granted. And I just wanted to pay homage to all of those people that have been part of the history of this country and to put those characters in children's hearts. Mm-hmm. And because my my parents uh, did that for me. I, I had to dedicate the story to them because mm. I couldn't have written this without them. Mm. So just as a parting thought there, um, wanting to put these stories into children's hearts, there is one thing that's for sure, and that is that your stories always have heart at their centre And it's been such a privilege to talk to you today, Sita. I'm looking forward to many more conversations in the future. Thank you so much, Nikki. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes.
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.